Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Confident Faith, today with a message entitled, Recognizing Common Grace. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Once had a conversation with someone that went something like this. He said, you Christians believe everyone is sinful, but I wonder how you come to terms with all the good things that happen in the world. Neighbors helping neighbors, people volunteering their time and effort to charities, people reaching out to those who are hurting. And not all of those people are religious, he said. Well, true enough, I said, there are a lot of people who do a lot of very good things. I know of people who have no affiliation with Christ, who have great marriages, who love their kids, take care of their neighbors. However, that's not the question, for that matter is not in doubt. The real question is, what accounts for this? Now, the Bible does have an answer. That answer has often been called common grace. Wayne Grudem has said, common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not a part of salvation. And so we call this common grace because these blessings that God gives by his grace are not restricted to believers, but rather are a part of God's kindness to all. So what are we talking about? What kinds of blessings? Well, let's start with Psalm 145, verse 9. It says, The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. And that's to say, God bestows acts of mercy and kindness and goodness, and even things like peace and security, ability to act with love towards others. He gives this to men and women in spite of their sin. But how does he do that? Well, one example might be in the area of government. Romans 13 verse 1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is to say, in mercy, God appoints political authorities, and indeed, government is his institution. Romans 13 verse 4 even says that the one who is in authority, it says, He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, we could talk about so many other areas of common grace from the sciences to the arts, to creating institutions that allow for human decency to be expressed. But please notice, this is the result of God's grace. If God did not offer this grace, well, then all the human sinful inclinations would make the world completely and fully evil. Indeed, in the last days, we are told that God will remove common grace, which gives rise to the Antichrist and the reign of lawlessness. So this is all called common grace. And in our study of the life of Abraham, we're going to find out one startling area where common grace was felt in his life. So let's read as far as we have come in our study of Genesis 20. I'm reading verses 1 and 2. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, in our last study, we had located Gerar as an important city which lay on the border between Canaan and Egypt. It was a caravan center, and goods would flow through that place. Abimelech was the king there, and so his government controlled that trade as well as law and order there. We also said that Abraham offered up his wife most likely as a peace treaty in which Abraham wanted to ensure that no harm would come to his household. 
And of course, we remember he said of Sarah, she is my sister. So let's continue to read verses 3 to 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Now you might find this passage, well, frankly, shocking. See, we would have expected that it would be Abraham who would be rebuked by God instead of Abimelech. I mean, after all, Abimelech is innocent. And in this, we need to understand what's at stake. What matters in this passage is the glory of God. Does God have the ability to do what he has promised or not? And as we have seen, if Abimelech would have taken Sarah as a wife, God's promise that in a year she would have a son would, well, that would always have been an open question. Is this Abraham's son or not? And so God acts to safeguard the promise that he has made that through Abraham's son, a blessing would come to the whole world. And that's the question that hangs in the balance. Can human will overthrow God's will? Can human misadventure or human sin or human unbelief or human disobedience overthrow God's set plan? That's the question. And that question is profoundly answered. No, it can't. See, you and I need to take comfort in this. If you're genuinely saved, and it's possible to be deceived in this, but it is possible to know with certainty that we are genuinely saved. And if we are genuinely saved, nothing can thwart the plan of God in our lives. God's plans for our life will be for his glory. And I'm convinced that God has the power to do that which he has promised. Now, before we go on, I want you to notice something in this passage. Sodom and Gomorrah have recently been destroyed, and every single person alive in that area at that time knew what had happened and why it had happened. Sexual immorality was at the heart of the reason why God judges people. And now it would seem that the same judgment was coming to Gerar. And that explains Abimelech's fear. He's not only afraid for himself, but he's also afraid for his city, the city of Gerar. He doesn't want it to be added to the list of casualties. And on top of that, he finds that Abraham is a prophet, a messenger of God. And perhaps all of this is a test. I mean, he doesn't know. He needs to plead for mercy. So let's continue to read. I'm reading now Genesis 20, verses 8 to 10. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told him all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? I need to stop here because it's interesting because in the NIV, it says, what have you done to us? But the ESV correctly translates this, what have you seen here? In other words, what is it that you have seen in this city that makes you act this way? What kind of city do you think this is? Do you think we're a city of violence? 
or a city of sexual misadventure like the kind of cities that recently existed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that what you think we are? But look around. What have you seen here? So let's continue to read Genesis 20, verses 11 to 13. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place of which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Did you catch Abraham's answer to Abimelech's question? What did you see here? And Abraham answered, I thought I saw a city that was so wicked that no fear of God is in this place, that unless I acted in the way that I did, that you would soon kill me the way the people of Sodom would have done. Now, this is the key to the story. It's Abraham's fears and not reality that led him into sin. In effect, when Abimelech asked Abraham what he saw, he asked him whether or not he saw people murdering others in Gerar or whether he saw evidence that people were engaging in adultery. You know, what's amazing is that this pagan city held a a general moral standard around sex. And what's more, there are numerous law codes and marriage certificates that we have from the ancient world that show that many people groups considered adultery to be a very great evil. And many people groups made it illegal. They knew that adultery destroys civilizations and makes human life unlivable. I find it amazing that our society doesn't know that. I remember a number of years ago befriending a young man and then later his young bride as they became married. And both of them were immigrants from a country that had no gospel witness there. And on one occasion when Kathy and I were visiting in their home, they had the television on. It was hooked to a satellite signal that was connected to their home country. I noted to him that it was very interesting, and he said, well, you'd enjoy this. You see, there's no sex on this television and none of the attitudes that you see in this country. Indeed, it was so. And that brings me back again to the issue of common grace. There are people groups and nations of the world that hold very strict standards of sexual morality. Truth in Life magazine. Now is the time to make sure you subscribe for our free bi-monthly magazine, Truth in Life. The next issue will be released in February, so by subscribing now, you'll ensure it will arrive on your doorstep. This next issue will discuss the distortion of love we find in our culture and the absence of a biblical understanding of love, love for God, love for others, and love in relationships. It also includes regular features for reading through the Bible in a year, updates on activities and events, and every issue features articles by Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, Isaac Dagno, and guest authors and pastors. February is culturally a time we celebrate love. Let's make sure we do it right. So to ensure you get your issue or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's put all of this in understandable terms. Is man as bad as he can be? Is this world a genuinely evil place? The answer must be crystal clear, yes or no. But on the one hand, outside of Christ, every single human being is depraved. 
Listen to the words of Scripture, Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, left on our own, we cannot do anything good, anything that's pleasing to God. Every human being is morally bankrupt, dead to God, dead to righteousness. That's the natural condition of every man or woman outside of Christ. The Bible says that we are by nature the objects of wrath. But while that is true, it's also true that not everyone's a Hitler or an axe murderer or a thief or a rapist or an adulterer. The world seems filled with people who have outwardly good behavior. And why is that? Well, the answer, as we have seen, is that God gives all people various degrees of common grace. He is determined not to let us self-destruct as a culture. So unlike the humanists who argue that man is essentially good, but forced to do evil because of a bad environment, Christians argue that man is essentially evil, but held in check because of God's restraining hand. What amazes me all the time, is not that there's so much evil in the world, but that there is so much good. And furthermore, out of his eternal purposes, he, because of numerous reasons, lavishes more common grace on some, even while he lets others give full vent to their unrighteousness. If Abraham could have seen that, a world not only of evil and of men willing to kill him, but a world that's held in check by the gracious hand of God, he would have been less afraid. He would not have been led into sin. He, he would have seen not danger, but God's grace everywhere he went. And that's one of the secrets of overcoming those pesky little sins that hang on for so long. So let me ask you a question. Have you seen that? See, I ask this question because the answer will bring us to the realm of grace or doom us into a pattern of sinful behavior. You know, sometimes I hear believers talking this way, sometimes wrongfully imagining only wickedness. You know, the world's getting worse, we say. Every bit of decency is being broken down, we might say. And this is one of the reasons we sin. I mean, consider, for example, the believer who's struggling with the sin of selfish ambition. And behind that sin is his view of the world. You know, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. If you don't take care of yourself, no one will. And that's what we honestly believe. We're unconvinced of God's common grace that he really does allow for love and, and truth and decency to exist in this world. How often we ignore this truth. And knowing the world is wicked, we make sure that no one takes advantage of us. We imagine wrong and so we struggle so hard to take care of our own needs and wants because after all, no one's going to take care of you. That's why we cheat and steal and lie and commit adultery. We're just taking care of ourselves. It's because of what we see that we can't get the victory. So what should we do? Well, for one, we should open our eyes and look. We should see God's hand everywhere around us. We should see not only God's promises to us. I've spoken much about that. We should also see God's promises to the world. Paul tells us that much in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. There he says, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Did you hear that? Right now, God is holding lawlessness at bay. He's restraining evil. It's because God's providence and care that we can rest and not indulge in the flesh, but, but trust in what he's up to. But there's also more. We should also see that there's grace all around us. I mean, take a look. 
Do you not see the grace of God? Indeed, that's what happened to Abraham. So let's continue to read Genesis 20, verses 14 to 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Now, I did a little calculation as to how much money Abimelech gave Abraham. And putting it into Canadian terms, it's roughly around $8.5 million. So at first glance, that's a staggering sum of money. I mean, why would he do that? And the Bible I'm using says in verse 16, it's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. The Hebrew literally reads, this is to you a covering for the eyes. You know, in the ancient world, a veil was placed over the face and eyes of a woman. It was a protection for her that, that she would not be violated. You know, I personally think that Abimelech was telling Abraham and Sarah, if you're ever in this situation again, just buy your way out of it. I've given you enough money to do just that. In other words, this pagan king was giving Abraham a lesson on righteous behavior. I think that must have been humbling for Abraham. I mean, here's a pagan king lecturing God's man as to what's right and what's indecent. And that's grace. See, every once in a while, I'll hear non-Christians lecturing a Christian on ethics. You know, maybe it's business ethics. Maybe it's about personal morality. Maybe it's about how we treat our spouses and our children. But whenever that happens, it not only humbles us, it's an act of grace from God that helps us to get our eyes back onto the Lord. We should see grace everywhere we look, and sometimes it comes from the most unlikely of all places. And so Abraham came to a moment of personal self-awareness. He saw an old behavioral pattern, a little bit of compromise, a, a little bit of mistrust in God, placed under the spotlight of God's truth and coming from the mouth of a pagan king. What a moment that must have been. You know, it might seem after that that Abraham would have slunk out of the city, a disgraced man of faith, a, a faulty prophet who had come up short. But that's not how the story ends. Abraham never ceases to be God's man. He's received a holy calling, and God always calls his man to do his will. And so with that, let's read the last part of Genesis 20, verses 17 and 18. It says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I love this last part of the chapter because it teaches us so much. In our weaknesses, we should never forget the grace of God. And Abraham continued to be God's man even though he had failed and even been humbled by a pagan king. I am cognizant of the fact that everyone who knows Christ is his spokesperson. You can be a physician or a firefighter, a farmer, a healthcare provider, a teacher, a lawyer, or a pipe fitter but you've been given a congregation of people to whom you've been given the task of sharing the grace of Christ. So don't you neglect your call because of your failures. My advice, be transparent about your failures, even asking forgiveness of those you have hurt and humble yourself. But in the process, don't forget who you are. You're God's man or you're God's woman. Be faithful to your calling and make sure that the gospel is made known. Pray for those who are around you, and everywhere spread the aroma of Christ. 
I find it fascinating that God had closed up the wombs in Gerar because of Abraham's failure and his sin. And yet it was God who called Abraham to play the role of the prophet and bring healing to that group of people. That ultimately is the final example of the weakness of man and of the grace of God. It's so wonderful that God uses people, people like us, people who are his and yet who are not yet what they will one day be. And these imperfect and sinning people still do his work. See, I remember the first time I led someone to faith in Christ. I'd been struggling over my own fears and doubts, and indeed, I was then struggling with assurance over my own salvation. And in the midst of my own doubts and fears, I had the privilege of leading my friend to Christ. I'm constantly amazed at God's grace, his patience, and his love. If you today are discouraged by your own weaknesses, would you today open your eyes? What is it that you've seen? Have you only seen wickedness, your own included? Or have you noticed the grace of God everywhere around you? Are you cognizant of his presence in the world, in your home and in your workplace and in your environment? And are you cognizant of the fact that God has had special grace on you and brought you salvation? Rejoice, believe God, and in believing God, never forget to be faithful and to be a light and to share the gospel wherever you go. John, I've often heard it said, and probably I've said it before myself, is that, you know, I know some non-Christian people that live better moral lives than some Christian people I know. How is that possible? Yeah, it is, happens all of the time. I mean, there's a number of reasons for it. I mean, sometimes a believer gets saved out of a very reprehensible background, and so they've got a long way for holiness to grow in their lives. And then you get a non-Christian who is raised in a family uh, in which they had very good values, and so from the outside, it looks like, well, they're morally superior. But of course, the other perspective, and that's the one I've talked about here, is the perspective that God gives common grace to all people. Not everyone commits adultery. Even if you have no faith at all, God can give grace so that people are committed to one another for life, care for their children well, uh, even give and, and are charitable in relationship to others. I mean, all of this thing happens. And what's the explanation? I mean, the Bible says the explanation is God was gracious, not that we were that good. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow for more of the series Confident Faith right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The legalization of marijuana. Are you ready? Prepared? Do you understand the impact on you, your community, young people? What is a trustworthy biblical perspective? And what's the impact physically, spiritually, socially? In Doubt and In Doubt Live is about connecting today's issues of faith and life with a biblical perspective. Join In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Dr. Lucinda Scott, and Mark Ward, author of Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture, live February 22nd at the Clover Theatre in Cloverdale, British Columbia. It's a free event for young adults, so arrive early. Doors open at 6.30, event begins at 7 p.m. And if you can't make it, no worries. The event is being broadcast live on Facebook, and you can submit your questions during the Q&A segment. So, for all the info you need, head to indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.